This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. I'd like to welcome everyone to our panel this afternoon. Oh, great. Um, today, the title of the panel is Detention, the Ethics of Protecting the Rights of Children. We have four tremendous attorneys right in front of us. Um, they're all dedicated to zealously representing the individuals that are affected by the violence going on in Central America. Uh, they have agreed to provide us with some insight on detention and some of the ethical and um, moral concerns that coincide with detaining children. First off, I'd like to introduce Jennifer Nagda. Ms. Nagda graduated with honors from University of Chicago Law School. She is now the policy director of Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights. Before joining the Young Center, Ms. Nagda was an attorney at the Midwest Regional Office of MALDEF. She was, uh, there she litigated immigration, education, and employment discrimination cases. Uh, to, her, to her left, we have Caroline Donahue. Ms. Donahue graduated from Temple Law School, where she was the first recipient, recipient of Sandra Mazur Moss Award. Ms. Donahue is now a solo practitioner specializing in family immigration and is currently the president of the Greater Reading Immigration Project and chair of the Berks County Bar Association Immigration Law Committee. The focus of her practice has been on representing and advocating for families detained in the Berks County Residential Center. Next, we have Bridget Cambria. Bridget Cambria is a graduate of Roger Williams School of Law in Rhode Island. She is partner in law offices of Cambria and Klein, a firm specializing in, <laughs> specializing in immigration law, and has worked at uh, several, immigration, uh, several immigration firms before starting her own. Notably, Ms. Cambria was successfully, uh, successful in setting an essential precedent in 2013. In the case of the matter of Zeleniak, Ms. Cambria successfully argued before the BIA, that's the Board of Immigration Appeals, that in absence of Dharma, immigration law could not and did not prevent the legal right of same-sex couples to petition their spouses and to have same-sex marriages legally recognized under immigration laws. To her left, we have Jackie Klein. Ms. Klein is a JD, um, received her JD as part of Drexel University School of Law's inaugural class. She is also partner at, Cam partner at Cambria and Klein. Uh, prior to opening her own firm, Ms. Klein worked at several Philadelphia immigration firms, <coughs> was a public interest fellow at National Service Center in Philadelphia, and received a fellowship to work on immigration issues for the Christian Legal Clinics of Philadelphia. Uh, she also has represented clients before immigration courts in Philadelphia, Newark, New York, Baltimore, Chicago, and Atlanta. So welcome, panelists. First off, uh, I'd like to start with a preliminary question uh, for the whole panel. Um, can you describe for us the detention policy of um, the detention policy of the U.S. towards unaccompanied minors, and also for family units, and how these individu individuals are finding themselves crossing the border in places such as Texas, yet are finding themselves detained in Pennsylvania? <coughs> so I'll start uh, briefly with unaccompanied minors, and then shift to the experts in family detention. So unaccompanied minors, um, as I'm sure you've heard, that they do come to the United States from every country around the world. The primary sending countries historically are Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Um, but they also come from Mexico and China and India and Afghanistan. Um, they've come from Ghana and Somalia and Senegal. Um, we've worked with kids really from every country um, around the world who have migrated to the United States seeking safety or seeking to reunify with family. 
Um, when those children are apprehended at the border, um, and our government often talks about the northern border and the southern border, but there's not so much entrance from the northern border. We're really talking about the border with Mexico. If they are apprehended by immigration authorities and they are determined to be unaccompanied, they are then transferred from our federal immigration law enforcement authorities to the Department of Health and Human Services, which is perceived to be the more benevolent service providing agency of the federal government. This is the home of the FDA, the CDC, and lots of other service providers. To be designated an unaccompanied alien child, a child must be under the age of 18, must lack lawful status in the United States, and must be without a parent or legal guardian or have no parent or legal guardian who is available to provide care and custody. So they may have a parent here in the United States, but if that parent is undocumented or is unable to travel um, to a border station and present themselves to immigration authorities perhaps because they live here and have US citizen children here, that child will be deemed unaccompanied. They're then placed in the custody of HHS and specifically the Office of Refugee Resettlement and they are placed in shelters and detention facilities around the country. Those facilities um, range from the least restrictive type of environment, which is short-term foster care where children live in group homes, to the most restrictive kind of environment, which are beds that ORR rents um, from juvenile detention facilities around the country. These are juvie jails, um, and the, the kids, even though they've not been accused of any crime, are placed in these facilities. The vast majority of kids live in shelter facilities, which range from nine to 200, in some cases, children. Um, they are restricted facilities. The children cannot come and go. They do not go to public school, um, but they do receive basic services, including food, shelter, medical care, um, and other basic services. The one benevolent aspect of this policy with respect to unaccompanied minors is that they can be released from these facilities to family members, but only for the pendency of their immigration proceedings. So they're really on two tracks. They're trying to get out of custody and get to their families, which for many of the kids is really what they're focused on. But because they've been charged with being in the country without permission, they're fighting a legal case. So they can be released from custody, but they must then continue to fight um, their legal case. Um, the average length of stay before this influx, this surge of children, um, was about four months. Um, when I first started doing this work seven years ago, it was even longer. The average length of stay for kids in these facilities has plummeted to about 30 days, which seems more reasonable. This is intended to be child protective, to make sure that the adults the children are being released to are safe, that they are who they say they are. There are smugglers and traffickers who try to sponsor these children out of custody. Um, and then to get them to a safe place. But there are a lot of children who spend a very long time in custody. We work with a lot of infants and toddlers um, who can't speak for themselves and we don't know their stories. And so it's very hard to find an appropriate placement for him. The children may be subject to custody battles. Um, and then we work with a lot of teenagers who have been accused but not proven of doing things where they may have had delinquency charges here in the States and they end up spending years, two, three, four years in government custody um, because nobody wants to let them out. So that's probably longer than you anticipated, but just a synopsis of how unaccompanied kids end up in custody and where they go. Um, okay, I'll talk about family units. So family units, which I, uh, we don't actually like to call them family units, they're families. Um, but that's what immigration calls them. They're treated entirely different than unaccompanied minors. So um, to mimic uh, what Jennifer had said, we do get families from all over the world. It's not necessarily just the three countries, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Um, at these facilities, we're seeing people from 
families from Syria, from Ethiopia, from uh, Eritrea, from China. I mean, it's not necessarily just uh, those three countries, however the majority are. Um, they are treated exactly the same though. Um, the families that approach the border are apprehended either, either by ICE or CBP, uh, Customs and Border Protection, and they do not go to uh, the benevolent Health and Human Services. They are retained by ICE, which is Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is the enforcement branch of immigration. So when the families are apprehended, um, they are contained right now in one of three facilities. Now, Pennsylvania housed the only family detention center in the entire United States up until last year. That was the Burks Family Detention Center, which is now changed the name so it doesn't sound so bad. It's the Burks County Residential Center, but it's the same. There also is the Carnes Family Residential Center and the Dilly Family Residential Center, or it might be County Island. Either way, they try to make them sound nice, but they're all the same. They're all secure detention facilities for families. That's mothers, fathers, and children, anyone under the age of 18. If you're unfortunate enough to be 17 and turn 18, you face being transferred to an actual jail. Um, so when you approach the border, you're apprehended. Um, you're kept typically in what's called uh, a freezer. How do you say it in Spanish? Yeah. Yeah. Um, for several days. Basically, it's just a room where they keep you till they can find a bed for you. Um, <coughs> the beds, again, it's either Burks, Carnes, or Dilly. Burks houses right now 100 people. Uh, it's going to expand, which we'll talk about later. Carnes, I believe, has around three to 500. Dilly, about the same, but Dilly is supposed to hold 2,500 families. Um, they are detained for extreme periods of time. What used to happen at Burks, Burks was actually the model of civil detention. You would go there, you'd stay there until we would find a family or a friend who would sponsor you and you'd be released. The time you were in detention was two to three weeks, a month, two months, but you would be released. As of July of last year, ICE has drastically changed their policies from a release policy to a no release. So these women are facing no way of leaving. We have women there that have just had their one year anniversary being detained. With their children. <laughs> with their children. So these are children as young as we had 12 days old to as old as 17. Um, so right now it's a very scary time. Um, if you're an immigration practitioner, it's very difficult for us because we're facing obstacles every time we try to release a family. Um, if you're lucky enough to have eligibility for a bond, the bonds are exceedingly high, much higher than a child or a mother fleeing persecution can face. Um, if you're unfortunate enough to not be eligible for a bond, immigration will not release you, even if you have a mother who's legal, a father who's legal, a spouse who's legal, somewhere to go, you could have 12 relatives that are legal and they will not release you. And that's one thing to remember is that everyone there does have someone who would be, who would take them and who would sponsor them. So it's not like we're only keeping them there because there's nowhere else they can go. We're keeping them there because of this deterrence policy. Um, and this is all brand new. This is not something that we've experienced as practitioners before. So we really are every day seeing how horrifying it's become. So we're probably going to talk more about that. Yes. Um, so after these individuals are placed in custody, um, what are the rights of these unaccompanied children <clears throat> in terms of 
in adversarial removal proceedings, and what are some of the ethical dilemmas that you uh, commonly deal with that, that arise in their cases? Unaccompanied kids. So uh, the unaccompanied minors are not without rights, nor are um, the adults and the families in custody. Um, all persons in the United States have a constitutional right to due process, to fundamentally fair proceedings. And I think we'll talk a little bit today about um, things that we see on a regular basis that we would deem to be not the least bit fundamentally fair, um, but yet which still stands. So they do have constitutional rights. Um, Children, unaccompanied minors, um, all of these kids are placed into adversarial removal proceedings. They are going to have to go into court. And once the government proves that they are here without permission, which is a pretty low bar, then the burden shifts to the children. And it is their obligation to prove that they have the right to remain, or it is their obligation to request permission to, re to go home without penalty. They bear that burden. They have a right to counsel but not at government expense. So there is no commensurate system to the federal defender system, um, even though the consequences for these kids, which include prolonged detention, de deportation for some kids who've lived here in the United States without status most of their life, it's equivalent to banishment. But the Supreme Court has said it doesn't rise to the level of criminal proceedings. These are civil proceedings. They're entitled to counsel, but the government's not going to provide it to them. So these kids, regardless of age, 18 months, 8 years, 17 and a half, have to, are expected to go out and find counsel for themselves. Well, we'll talk about sort of the world of NGOs and practitioners that has come together to try and address some of those issues. But they do have the right to counsel. Um, the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, which was enacted in 2008 and which is very much under attack for all of the wrong reasons in Congress, provides a few additional rights to these children. It provides them by statute um, with the rights to be placed in the least restrictive form of custody, which I believe is short-term foster care, not large 200-bed residential facilities. Um, it provides them um, with uh, the right to have independent child advocates, which is the program that we run at the Young Center. Not the right, but the ability to have child advocates to argue for their best interests. Um, and it provides, it imposes upon the government an obligation to ensure that children are safely repatriated, which is an obligation um, that is violated on a pretty regular basis as we put children on planes and send them back without adequate investigation into who will meet them, who will care for them, and where they'll live upon their return. I think for me there are two big ethical, there are many ethical issues, but I'm going to focus for the purpose of time on two big ethical issues. The first is, and I do hope this comes as a surprise to some of you, there is no best interest standard in immigration law, no explicit statutory best interest standard. No one in our system, except for the Office of Refugee Resettlement when choosing a placement, but otherwise neither immigration judges, nor DHS officials, nor anyone else who's making decisions about these kids is obligated to think about what is in their best interest before making a decision. This runs completely counter to the law of all 50 states. In any other proceeding in the United States in which a child is separated from a parent or guardian, that the court is obligated to think about best interests, and so is everyone else in the room. Even in delinquency proceedings, there's usually an obligation to think about best interests when balancing the issue of retribution and rehabilitation. That is absent in immigration proceedings. Um, it also violates the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which has been ratified by every single country in the world, including South Sudan and Somalia, who are the last to ratify it, except for 
Us, yes. So we are the only country not to have ratified the Convention on the Child, which requires that every government and private actor that is making decisions about children consider their best interests. So this is a huge ethical issue. And even our Supreme Court has recognized that the CRC sort of carries the weight um, of international law. Um, so the government has stepped forward in a couple of ways. One, it has provided funding um, for child advocates. Um, there are, uh, until last year, there was one child advocate program in the whole country. That was us. We were based in Chicago and Harlingen. We've now grown to a whopping five locations around the country. We serve between five and 20% of the children who are detained in any location. We serve less than 1% of children who've been released to family members. We are actively recruiting in the Pennsylvania area and training bilingual and even non-bilingual child advocates. So should you be so inclined, I left my card. I wasn't gonna do this without a pitch. Um, but um, but the, the fact that decision makers can make these decisions without thinking about the best interests of the child I think is a huge ethical issue. The other one which I'll highlight and then I'll shut up is the fact that the government has found ways to provide lawyers to the children who are in detention facilities primarily to provide know your rights information sessions, which is very important. But if those lawyers at NGOs like HIAS, the National Health Service Center, um, and other great places <coughs> want to represent the children, they need to raise private funds, find pro bono lawyers, that's many of you in the room, um, or otherwise um, find a way to represent the kids. That presents a huge challenge. That's changing very slowly, and you've probably heard about all these programs to provide lawyers to kids. The majority of children remain unrepresented when they stand before an immigration judge who is a lawyer, and when on the other side of the room is a government attorney who's a trained lawyer and who's prosecuting the case against them. The majority of those children still have to stand up there and speak for themselves and meet the same legal criteria as every adult who stands in the very same courtroom. You know, special courts for kids. Um, what this means is that the lawyers who do work with these kids have to triage. So they're in the position of trying to pick the cases that they can win and the most number of kids they can help. And this results in two ethical issues, I think. One is that they can't fight a lot of the issues that they'd like to. They can't fight conditions of custody issues. And that's a big issue. Why? Because the government is funding their work. If they turn around and bite the hand that feeds them, the benevolent hand, Benevolent hand can still cut off funding and say, hi, as you're no longer serving um, the detention facility um, in Bethlehem. We're gonna find another agency to do it because you challenge the conditions of detention. So that's an issue. Um, the other issue um, is that um, the lawyers are focused on, sorry, I'm, maybe I'll just stop there because I, I wanna give time to talk about some of the ethical issues for, for kids in detention with their families. Well, I would say, um, I mean, I'll start with the number one ethical issue is um, that we're detaining these families. Uh, is uh, these mothers and fathers and children are following our asylum laws. You will often hear, you know, they're entering illegally. Oh, but they came here illegally. But they're not doing anything that is against our law, our asylum laws. They are presenting themselves at the border. They are escaping violence, as you, if anyone who just watched that movie and listened to the speaker, <coughs> they're escaping horrendous violence and left with no choice but to come here. And finding themselves, our response to that 
is to take these mothers and children and put them in prisons. And I mean, if you, we, we use lovely language like residential center and shelter and, and all, you know, they're detainees. But they're, we are incarcerating, look up the definition, children. And you know, the first picture that we had up here was of a 12-day-old. A mother and her 12-day-old were detained at the Berks facility. And their only reason that they are being detained, as Bridget said, this was did not used to be the policy. The policy was asylum. They might have been sent to Berks temporarily while they go through their asylum interview, and then they would be released to family members elsewhere. The only reason these families, since last summer, are being detained is to send a message to those back in Central America, don't think you can come here and get to stay. It's not because they're looking at a case by case, oh, these people are, this particular person is a security risk. They are just trying to send a message, don't come. That's my number one. Do you have another? I have an ethical dilemma for the actual government and their prosecuting of the families in the manner that they are. And um, using this deterrence policy is extremely frustrating because there is no way that detaining 2,000 individuals, families, is going to prevent a surge of people fleeing violence. They're thinking, I'm, today if I stay here, I'm going to die. If I'm there, maybe I won't. That's the thought process. Um, and our responsibility to the children that are in these processes, as Jennifer said, a child presents him or herself in, in an immigration court What's the obligation of the government attorney to make sure that if that child is an asylum, that we ensure that we're protecting that child? What's the, what's the responsibility of the judge to ensure that the child can present his or her case in a truthful manner and an efficient manner to meet the qualifications because we should protect them whether they're represented or not. And the government, um, I believe the Obama administration has, at least in the, in the jurisdiction of New York and San Francisco, I believe, they appoint attorneys. But that's not the case everywhere else. So what's our obligation to those children um, to make sure that while they're going through the process that they get every opportunity to meet that standard, which is extraordinarily difficult. But what, what I see, at least in representing them, is a government that is hell-bent on making sure that these children do not win. And it started when they changed the policy and, and um, the government saying that none of these families will qualify. None of these families will win asylum because they don't fit the standard. Well, Ayla and their uh, pro bono attorneys and, and us at Berks have shown that these families are asylees because we are winning these cases. So, when is the government going to learn that maybe these people fleeing actually have claims? Maybe we actually should protect them. Maybe we should be thinking about that baby and these children uh, before slamming the hand down and calling them all liars. And, Making their, making their case so difficult as opposed to just allowing them to present their case and making a fair ruling. Thank you. So the, so the next question is uh, more directed towards the lawyers in the room that maybe have some concerns about taking on these cases. All right, so as the lawyers know, Rule 1.14 of the Rules of Professional Conduct states, when a client's capacity to make adequately considered decisions in connection with the representation is diminished, such as where a client is a minority, the lawyer shall, as far as reasonably possible, maintain a normal client relationship with the client. 
Can you describe for us what it's like building an attorney-client relationship with a child and maybe some of the obstacles you face? And be the conduit 
um, and help a child walk into a system that was built for adults and has no special accommodations for children. When we talk about the legal system, no special forms of relief with one exception, um, no special courts, no special judges, no special government attorneys, that so we're working very hard to try and change that and to build um, to encourage the government to build a core of judges who want to be judges in children's cases and ICE trial attorneys who want to be the trial attorneys in children's cases and who are willing to be trained in child-sensitive um, and trauma-based, trauma-informed um, questioning techniques. Um, but absent that, to be the conduit of a child's <coughs> story in that forum and to help them navigate um, from their place of fear and trauma and detention to being able to tell their story in a successful way is an amazingly powerful thing to do. And whether or not you're a lawyer, your ability to partner with a lawyer to be part of that process can be very powerful and effective. So I would, I would encourage you to, um, to recognize that there's a lot of positives to doing a work in as upended and crazy and insane a system as we see. That's very true. And just understand just that from the video to the part of that. If they don't have an attorney, the person who becomes the, pretty much becomes the attorney is the parent. And a parent is in no position to go against a government lawyer or an immigration judge. So it's extremely important that these children find lawyers. And it makes, it does, it makes all the difference. If you have a lawyer, the chances are, you know, the odds are stacked against you. <laughs> um, but there's a chance. Uh, if you don't have a lawyer, it's very, very difficult to succeed. Okay, this next question is for Bridget, because I know she has previously worked in the Berks County facility. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what family detention looks like and what some of the most troubling moral, ethical, and legal aspects of detaining children are? I think um, detaining children violates all of those things very easily, but uh, I did work at the Berks County, uh, it was detention center at the time. Um, actually, family shelter was at the time. And um, I was a shelter care counselor, but I was nothing like a counselor. I was a prison guard. So what I did is I counted. My job in the morning, I woke them up, counted, made sure everybody was there, we went to breakfast, and we came back and we sat in a room and watched TV for a while. And then it was dinner time, and then they came back and we watched TV for a while, and they, then they went to their rooms, they went to sleep, and we did bed checks every 15 minutes. The doors were locked, um, they could not leave, if they were lucky enough to make a phone call, you only get three a week, and that's only if you can connect. So if you can imagine trying to call certain countries, you can't get through very easily. If you try three times, you're done. And at the time, they housed both unaccompanied minors and families, so the shelter was split into two sides. So you had uh, basically teenagers on one side and families on the other. And when I was there, when I started, uh, we had a group of families and unaccompanied minors, and when I left, those same people were still there. And that was in 2001, and I'd been there a year. Um, it's why I went to law school, it's why I became a lawyer, and now this is so exciting for me to fight against the facility that I worked at. <laughs> Actually, when I, when I did leave school, my, um, my admonition when I left, by my boss was, don't become one of the lawyers that helps these people when you come back. I was like, fine, it's fine. And I went to law So let me tell you about the moral problems, well, that's easy. Um, keeping families that have done, no, uh, done nothing wrong, there's no crimes, keeping them in a facility with locked doors with no way to leave when they have a home to go to, family to be with, for an indefinite period of time, violates every moral obligation that 
we have as citizens of the United States that our government has representing us and that we have as lawyers. So that's very easy. Um, what legally is violated? Well, they are detained. Their freedom is violated. Their, their access to legal services is violated. I'll tell you what, the three lawyers that, that are up here, we represent so many people there, and it's not because we want to represent hundreds of people. It's extraordinarily difficult. When we started, um, the caseworkers told us that they can, they can go on that computer over there and they can look up lawyers anytime they want. They're from the mountains of Guatemala. They can't read or write. They don't, they've never seen a computer before. They had no way to look for a lawyer. They were given legal services sheets, so I, I looked at the legal services sheet, and not one place on there, they were in Jersey and different states, not one facility on there would actually represent them. There was no list of individual lawyers. They had nothing, and not one person had a lawyer in the entire facility when I was lucky enough to get my first one. And now we have like 30, but um, one thing that I do encourage <coughs> people that wants to represent somebody or anybody that is interested in signing up or just wants a case, the way that we're going to win this is by everybody taking a case and everybody trying their hardest to win. Because that's what's frustrating the government right now. The fact that we are there and we are helping. Well, because basically they, their policy is they want they wanted it to be very fast. They wanted to bring these people in, get them deported, ship them out, bring in the next thing. So when people have lawyers, they can't do that. You know, I mean, it's frustrating for our clients because they've been there so long, but we're also stopping them from being able to, to refill the beds. So the more people that have lawyers, the more people um, you know, who actually get their cases heard, um, but the less people that they can, you know, they can't just keep this mill going. Yeah. Uh, troubling aspects for children and adults besides the language access and access to counsel. Um, oh, we didn't talk about language access. We should talk about that. But um, it's one of the things that we're really experiencing facilities, not just Burks, but um, is medical lack of access to adequate medical care. It is bizarre what these people, um, when, when they're ill, when they go uh, to, they have medical staff on the, you know, in the facility, but I have one client who's had stomach pains for the past three months and they have prescribed her eight 200 milligram ibuprofen a day. 1,600 milligrams a day for three months and they said she can continue through May, okay? They don't know what they're taking. They don't know why they're taking it. Um, here's my... Uh, just in, 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 what, what was up here is inevitable consequences. When you have people detained for so long, something's bound to go wrong. And the staff there is not in any way equipped to handle children's illnesses, to handle significant medical issues. I had a client who had a brain malformation. She went to a neurologist. I had to fight for them to release her. And if you're ready, this is our shock value picture. There was an, a, um, a little girl, right? Mm -hmm. Two years old, for three days she was vomiting blood. Just blood, no food, because she wasn't eating. And 
Uh, their prescription for everything is to drink water. Water. Hot water, cold water, doesn't matter. That's the prescription for everything. So what they were telling the mother was she just needs to drink more water. So she drank more water and then she spit up more blood. Um, they did not take her to the hospital immediately. Um, she was throwing up blood for a few days before they did. And when they took her to the hospital, she was there for less than an hour. They didn't, um, I'm not even sure what medical tests they did. And for us as practitioners, um, they don't tell us. They didn't tell us that she was throwing up blood. They didn't tell us that she went to the hospital. We're not allowed to have access to the medical staff. Um, I'm not allowed to have the phone number for the doctor. I'm not allowed to have an email for the doctor. I'm not allowed to speak to the doctor. If I want um, to get something across, I have to give personal medical information to a caseworker who will pass it along to the doctor, who will pass it back to me. That's the, yeah, through the caseworker. Um, I don't know what hospitals they're being taken to. Uh, we had another client who um, passed out on at least three occasions and may or may not have fallen down the stairs. According to them, they found her at the bottom of the stairs, but one of the residents said that she had fallen down the stairs. They found her passed out in the bathroom with bruises all over her back from when she fell. Um, so they took her to the ER on a couple of occasions. Again, they never told us. Um, there was another time when she, so what would happen is she would start to feel dizzy. She would, um, you know, start feeling sick. She would go to the medical doctors and say, you know, I'm having these problems. And even though they knew that she had passed on multiple occasions, her medical records say that um, they told her to sit in a comfortable chair and drink some water. And, but we observed her for an hour and she seemed okay. Um, you know what I mean? So it's just sort of the treatment. I mean, if you can imagine, like as a mother, your, your child is throwing up blood and no one will listen to you. We were no one will take, yeah, no one emails will take from so many of the residents, right. please do something. The kids are throwing up. They haven't eaten. You know, the one child is throwing up blood. They're doing nothing. They won't let them have anything other than the food they are given. So the mother asked, can I get at least yogurt or something that this child can eat? One of the staff members did get her yogurt and the staff member got in trouble for doing that because they have to eat what's there. So and the, just to keep your focus, <coughs> we don't need to be detaining these people. So they're going, you know, they're experiencing medical issues, they're experiencing depression, the kids have, and there's no reason we need to be detaining them, yet we still continue to. I'll just note that both the mother that she describes and the child that this happened to is still there. And she's been there since June of last year. To highlight um, the difference between the treatment of families who are detained together and unaccompanied children, um, I think we heard a lot of similar concerns about the way that unaccompanied children were treated and the lack of attention to medical issues prior to 2001. And that's because prior to 2001, it was the same agency. So keep in mind, the detention facilities are operated by the agency that is responsible for protecting the borders and removing people from the United States before 2001, that was the INS, the Old Immigration and Naturalization Service. When we decided to restructure in the wake of 9-11, when we decided to restructure the federal agencies that deal with immigration issues and we created the Department of Homeland Security, at that time there was a recognition that maybe the agency capturing and prosecuting the children should not be responsible for caring for them. And that's when custody of unaccompanied children was transferred to the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And I will say that for the unaccompanied minor population, 
Um, there is medical care provided in all of the facilities where they are, and I, I, I would like to say that I don't think anything along these lines would happen in those facilities today um, because of the staff who are trained to work there and the services that are provided. Do we think medical care is wonderful? No. But is it that? No. What I will say in terms of health issues for unaccompanied minors is there just, there's completely inadequate support for mental health concerns. For this whole network of maybe um, 10 to 12,000 beds around the country for these kids, um, there are three residential treatment facilities for children with significant mental health concerns. And as you can imagine from the film you saw um, and other issues that have come up today, a lot of these kids are struggling with significant trauma, treatable trauma, as I'm sure Kathy would say and will say later today, um, but there, there is simply no funding um, to provide them with the kind of mental health services and support that they require. Um, and when you combine that with kids being separated from families and being locked up, we see a lot of kids who deteriorate in custody because they're not able to access the mental health services that they need, and then they get into trouble. And when they get into trouble because their mental health issues are not addressed, they get stepped up to a higher level of security. And guess what happens when they get stepped up to a higher level? It's a lot harder to get released. So then they're told it's not 30 days, it's 90 days. So what do they do? They're teenagers. They act out. Um, so guess what happens? They get stepped up or they get moved. And so it can become, um, in a, the minority of cases where these kids spend a long time in the system, very problematic. And I will stress that that is not the majority of cases anymore, and that's one of the very significant benefits of the thoughtful legislation that moved detention out of the hands of the agency that is responsible for prosecuting. And I think that says a lot about why the system operates the way it does <coughs> Jennifer, I don't know if you could comment just a little bit on Flores and how it, how it helped um, children, like the unaccompanied minors. So the Flores Settlement Agreement was the product of the amazing work of a lot of lawyers. See, lawyers do a lot of good work. Um, uh, and based in California, it started back in the 90s, and it was an effort uh, back when the facilities were operated by INS um, to change the conditions of custody because these sorts of things were happening. Not enough food, no medical care, no education. Um, and so there was a class action lawsuit that resulted in a settlement. Um, and the Appendix A of the settlement, which is still in effect today, um, and which continues to be litigated in those cases where the government doesn't actually step up and provide what it's supposed to, spells out the things that are supposed to be provided. Access to religious services, access to education, um, access to medical care, access to adequate food. Every child is supposed to have outdoor time and major muscle activity. How much of that do you think happens in very, very large facilities? Um, and they're supposed to have access to a lot of other services. One of the biggest problems is that for unaccompanied minors, the vast majority of beds, um, programs to house these kids, are located on the border, specifically in the Rio Grande Valley, in Harlingen, in Brownsville, in McAllen. Um, how many external service providers do you think are there to provide pro bono services or even at-cost services? It is a low-resource community. For years, we've been arguing that facilities should be built in high-resource communities in New York, in Philadelphia, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, where there's linguistic capacity and pro bono capacity, and not just legal pro bono, but medical pro bono capacity, psychological pro bono capacity. <laughs> Yet the largest number of beds remain on the border in an economically impoverished community. I don't know if that's what you were going for with Florida. Yeah, and I wanted to just draw the distinction between um, children and families. So what the government has done very recently, within the last month or two, has filed a, a motion to amend Flores to not include the children that are held in family detention facilities. And that's being litigated right now. So what they're trying to say is 
Flores doesn't apply to all children, even though that's literally what it says. They're trying to say <coughs> it only applies to children that are by themselves, but when they're with a parent, it won't apply, which sort of goes against the entire spirit of Flores, which is to protect every child in immigration custody. And so right now, there's no decision on that, even though the government is blatantly violating the agreement by keeping children indefinitely Thank you. Can, can we uh, speak to um, the operation of the facilities, uh, public versus private? So Berks County is actually, uh, Berks County Residential Center is actually run by the county. It's not a private facility. Carnes and Dilly are actually run by for-profit uh, corporations, uh, the GeoCorp, right? So what they do is they make money off of every bed that's filled, and there's a quota from our Congress as to how many beds in the United States have to be filled. So um, a really good way to meet that quota is to build these new facilities and basically build beds. Um, uh, although Berks County isn't a county-run facility, it still makes money for the county. So it's very difficult to, when we do have issues, to have anything resolved through using our local services because the county is so intent on not, um, you know, not sort of offending the federal government so that we can use this. Facility. Right, so the government ICE, it's an ICE-owned facility, but it's run by county employees. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of protection for us to try to speak out against this. Um, it's, it's, it, there's a big wall because this is, you know, jobs we're talking about. And right now, they house 96, and they're going to be doubling. So, um, we see it every day, them building onto this facility. The one thing that we're challenging right now, we'll see how it goes, is um, we sent in a letter to uh, Kathleen Kane, just uh, because Berks County, as opposed to the Carnes uh, and Dilly, um, supposedly has a license to operate and to, uh, um, to house children. The, the license is based on a statute that's for delinquent children. So the, under the statute, they're supposed to have been adjudicated delinquent. Well, none of these, you know, two-year-olds um, have as yet been adjudicated delinquent. And so the, the statute, I mean, the license itself is bogus, besides the fact that not, no state should be detaining children under 10 years old. But they get around these things and nobody notices. And the thing is, you know, we have to be out there noticing. Now it's brought, you know, brought to light just exactly how egregious it is. So I'm sure everyone's thinking, you know, our, our taxpayer dollars are being spent towards these facilities. What are some of the more ethical alternatives we can have to detention? Well, right now, they actually just came out with, um, they published an updated statistics um, that it's costing an average of $343 per person per day to house people in these detention. So a lot of people who complain about, I don't want immigrants here because it's taking, you no, know, our tax dollars are going to go to X, Y, and Z. Well, that's where your tax dollars are going. They're going to prisons um, that are for profit, besides the British facility, um, private corporations. But they have alternatives to detention. So a lot of people are released on ankle monitoring. Um, like the video shows. So they basically, I mean, immigration can track them wherever they go. Other people have check-ins with ICE where they're told a day and a time to show up. <coughs> if they don't show up, you know, then immigration 
have you have to have not a cell phone but a home phone. So immigration will tell you a day and a time that they're gonna call you on that phone and you have to answer. So they have other ways to make sure that people are still where they say that they are. Um, also the statistics show that 98% of kids who do have lawyers do show up for their proceedings. And it's almost the same um, percentage for adults who have lawyers. So it's not like most of these people are you know, skipping out on their courts, which is what immigration um, philosophy behind keeping them all detained is, well, we want them to go to court. Uh, but the statistics show that they are going to court and they are following through you know, on their cases. Those alternatives are somewhere between 17 cents and $17 a day. So you're looking at less than $20 a day versus in the 300s a day of taxpayer dollars. And those alternatives to detention are used regularly mm -hmm. for single adults, right. but they are not used mm -hmm. for families. Families do not get the benefit of the alternatives to detention. And Neither do unaccompanied children, but they right. do need to be reunited with somebody. Um, and the people that, like when they do release people, how it used to be, like they just said, single adults um, who are coming. I mean, typically they're living with family members that are supporting them. So they're with brothers, sisters, parents, you know, who have taken them in. Um, so the taxpayers are not paying, you know, they don't get benefits or things like that, but their family members are caring for them. and covering that burden versus them being detained for you know, all the food, um, the housing, medical cost is being paid for by taxpayer dollars. So it's, it's a huge difference in the amount uh, between detention cost and these alternative measures. If I could just raise a, an issue that I think is a corollary to this idea of alternatives to detention. Um, there has been a lot of talk um, in the media and on Capitol Hill about um, changing the way unaccompanied minors are treated when they reach the border. And there's been a lot of talk about the fact that we treat Central American children differently from Mexican children. And that is correct. By statute, we treat them differently. We offer more protection to the Central American children than we do to the Mexican children. If a child is apprehended on the border and says, I'm Mexican, by law, the Customs and Border Patrol officials, who are law enforcement, um, uniform-wearing, arms-carrying officials who are charged with protecting the borders, are supposed to ask them three child protective questions. Do you fear return to your country? Have you been, are you at risk of trafficking? Have you been abused in your home country? You can imagine, the, and, and CBP will be the first to admit it. They don't like doing that screening, nor should they. Um, um, but they are charged with doing that screening of children. And if the children say no, they get to return back to Mexico without coming in to custody. Um, there has been a lot of talk about needing to treat all children the same. The idea being that we would ask all of those questions in the same way of the Central American children. The idea being they wouldn't then come into custody because none of them would say yes to those questions because of the way that they are asked, the circumstances under which they are asked. And they would simply return to Mexico in order to return to their home countries as well. This is seen as a huge cost savings measure to the United States. We wouldn't have to then bring them in, care for them, release them to families, and adjudicate their claims of asylum or their requests for visas based on trafficking or being abused, abandoned, or neglected in their countries of origin. Um, and so what's missing from that dialogue is the idea that what is done for the Central American children is intended to be protective. And advocates for the last four years since that law was passed have been fighting to bring Mexican children into the fold and treat them the same as Central American children. 
Um, and I'll, keep, I'll remind you, even though the vast majority of children come from Central America, Chinese children will be subject to that policy, Indian children will be subject to that policy, East and West African children will be subject to that policy, including those fleeing war and persecution and famine. Um, so when there's all this talk about treating all of the children the same, I would urge you to sort of look carefully at what's being talked about and to um, look for and ask questions about the difference between how Mexican children are treated and how Central American treated uh, children are treated and whether we want those kinds of alternatives. All right. I have uh, one last question before we open up the floor for questions, um, and it's quite a loaded one. Uh, how do you protect the rights of children and their parents in these facilities, and what are the biggest challenges you think practitioners will face? Get angry. <laughs> one, thing. Um, one thing that we've discussed, and, and it's, a, it's a different situation with the unaccompanied children, but um, the way we're going to do this, we can do this on a case-by-case -case basis, you know, as we luckily have done in some cases, but um, the odds, again, are stacked against us. The numbers are stacked against us. The only thing we can do to stop this is to end this family detention policy itself. We can't fight this <coughs> It has to be fought in numbers. It has to be fought in awareness. It has to be fought in action, in the media. Um, that's the only way that we're going to get this to stop. Okay. Yeah, take questions from anybody. Oh, there we go. Hi. Um, so what's the risk of rape and other sexual violence for young women or men within these facilities? Oh. Um, well, I do know that there were accusations and comments. Um, they were deemed unfounded once ICE did their own investigation. I don't know factually about that. However, we did in Berks County um, have a institutional sexual assault that occurred for several months. And um, the way it was handled was catastrophic, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, just give a little background. Okay, well, we had a staff member who was in his 40s, and he maintained a sexual relationship with a resident who was 19 and had a four-year-old son there. The relationship went on for a long time. The resident, upon being you know, questioned later on, basically stated, you know, she, she engaged with it, but she wasn't comfortable with it. And I guess you could understand if you were in a prison, how that would work. This is like a prison. So, um, nobody talked. This was the scariest part. Our clients didn't tell us. Nobody talked. Whether staff knew about it, nobody said anything. Our, our clients knew about it and didn't say anything. And it took one person, one resident, who was brave enough to speak up and talk to a supervisor. Unfortunately, this was after a child had walked into a bathroom while the staff member was engaging in a sexual act with the resident. And that child was seven years old and a victim of sexual violence herself. So, and the resident had been a victim of sexual violence. So, they did not release the mother who was the victim. They did not release the child who walked in. They did fire the staff member, appropriate, 
but they didn't investigate for two months. So it came to none of our attention until our clients actually came forward and said, I'm scared because federal officials interrogated me. And they interrogated everyone in the facility outside of the presence of their lawyers about this um, incident. And the reason they didn't tell us was because the way that they were being talked to was basically <coughs> that they knew about this was gonna get deported. And there was such a fear um, that they didn't even wanna ask us if that was true. Like they wouldn't even tell us because they heard anyone who says anything about this is getting deported. You know, and that sort of, um, not just in that situation, but in other situations, they use sort of fear tactics as a method to control the women. So they're always being told that they're gonna be written up. Anything that they do, um, it's gonna be written up and the judge is gonna get a list of everything. And I mean, I was, Judge Sterling does not care that you were wearing tight jeans on Tuesday, you know, <laughs> against the policy. Like it's not, you know, but I mean, for them, they, they don't know, you know, that's the mentality there. I mean, they're such a, the staff have such control over them, I and mean, like when they're telling them these things, I mean, they honestly believe that that's going to affect, you know, their case. Yeah, and let's talk about the reaction, right? Their right. reaction. They did not. They fired him. Good. No counseling for the no counseling people for the there. They kept this victim detained for an additional two and a half months. They did not release any of the children from witness. They blamed the women in the facility. They changed a clothing policy. Which prevent they, they literally went into every woman's literally yes. They went to every woman's closet and child pulled their clothes out, threw them on the ground, and took out the clothes that they deemed inappropriate. Which yeah, basically too sexual, too tight, too too tight, too low. Show arms. And family members had bought them these. You know, it wasn't like they, they were given this stuff by the staff. Family members had bought them, and the policy was enforced for anyone from age six and up. So if a six-year-old girl was wearing shorts and caught wearing shorts in bed at night and sleeping, they were written up and she was chastised. This is our response to the sexual assault <coughs> to tell the women you're wearing clothes that are too tight, there are men in this facility. With respect to unaccompanied minors, I would point out that there are two lawsuits that are particularly interesting, um, it, it, interesting to watch in terms of how they develop. But the ACLU and a number of agencies that work with unaccompanied minors have filed suit um, against the Department of Homeland Security about the conditions that children experience in Customs and Border Patrol custody when they're first apprehended, ranging from the llaneras, the ice boxes. Um, where they are kept to um, complaints of, of physical um, and other types of assault, and that is pending in court right now. Um, a group of courageous attorneys on the West Coast have also filed suit. It's the ACLU and public counsel and other great lawyers have filed suit saying that the government does, in fact, have an obligation to provide counsel who are, to children who are appearing in adversarial proceedings uh, before a judge, um, and that suit is pending in Seattle. It's a very interesting case. Um, and there's lots that's been written in the press about how the arguments have been playing out and some of the guarantees our government has made about why this is not necessary and why children are doing just fine and don't need lawyers. Um, so though both of the, one is specifically conditions oriented and the other is, is about um, For the unaccompanied minors to be adopted by the 
So most of the unaccompanied minors do have family members that they can reunify with here. The issue is how to get them out of custody to their family members. The family members can be subjected to home studies, including parents. So all adults who try to have a child released to them are called sponsors, getting to the, the language issue, even parents. So a mother is not a mother, she's a sponsor. Father is not a father, he's a sponsor. Um, and all sponsors are generally treated the same, although ORR has gotten, has made some improvements in facilitating the release of children to parents versus unrelated adults, who of course you would want some investigation into. As I said before, there's no shortage of traffickers and smugglers um, who are just as interested in finding these children as um, adults who'd like to help them and potentially adopt them. Um, for those kids who don't have family, they tend to be older, um, and generally the government is very skeptical about adults who present themselves, um, though unrelated adults in some cases have been able to sponsor children out of custody. In terms of immigration benefits, if a child is over 16, adoption provides no immigration benefits. Um, so adults may be able to play a role in sponsoring a child's release, but that won't have any impact on the child's immigration case if that adoption takes place at age 16 or above. It's not a mechanism for providing any kind of immigration status. And I, I do want to, I realize I made a huge error in numbers. Um, I mentioned at one point that there are, are thousands of beds around the country for unaccompanied children. I believe that there are roughly 3,000 beds around the country right now, it's not. I think I provided like a five-digit number, so if I said that, I apologize. Uh, Mr. Matza, I think you were next. Justin getting other lawyers involved and you know with us getting other <laughs> the people that can pay pay what they can and you know it's it's we call it low ball now so basically <laughs> can you afford something so that we can continue right or if for example the 12 day old baby obviously can't pay a fee it's like you just see it and you're like that person can't go to court without an attorney but we cannot continue that sort of trend considering they're doubling considering the numbers that continue to grow. It's something that we need people. Yes. Well, when, when it first started, when we first learned about all of this, and the way you know nonprofits are set up is for pro bono is to basically select, like you say, the meritorious cases, the ones that are winnable. Um, when these guys first started going over there, and there were, we did have no idea the numbers of people because um, no one had told us. And there would be 21 people waiting. Um, and they invited me over. And there was another, you know. And most of them had passed their asylum interviews. Um, and we made the decision that 
we're not looking at whether it's, it's meritorious if they have, they pass their claim their, with their asylum officer. So we're going to get them representation one way or the other. And so that's how we ended up with a lot of cases. I, I don't but, like that term meritorious right, because exactly. you can't tell at the onset of a case. I mean, that's a, your right. job as a lawyer right. is to work with people to find out what their claim is. And sometimes it's not evident in the first time you meet with them or the second time or the third time. Right. Uh, but we won cases that, um, no I mean, some of, the, some of the nonprofits had gone through and, you know, like these are meritorious claims, these are not. But the claims that we had, none of the claims on our, the ones that we had taken, were deemed meritorious. And we won, you know, a majority of them on things that were, we thought, creative arguments. Um, <laughs> you know, but, I mean, that's our job as, as advocates for people is to really work um, to find, you know, to work with their case and to come up with um, the strongest possible. You know, so that's for us, that's why we didn't want to, you know, we want to be able to find a lawyer for everyone. You know, and if one person takes one case, you know, that's sustainable. It's not sustainable for the three of us to take 100 cases pro bono or low bono or, you know. So we have been we have been. putting the word out there. <coughs> We've been putting the word out there since day one, you know, that these people need help. Whether it's pro bono, whether it's low bono, we're not that far away. We're not Texas, you know? We're not that far away. And we are, what I think about where we are located is that it's, we're not in the middle of nowhere. So people can come and they can see what's going on and then they can tell others. I would say for unaccompanied kids, oh, there are questions. So I'll just say that. Um, uh, the government has started funding lawyers for children who've been released, um, and those are staffed on a first-come, first-served basis, and the lawyers are not, I don't think, turning away. They take the kids who come. They're going to run out of capacity very, very quickly, but there, there's no triaging. Um, and I know that the lawyers who are serving the kids in detained facilities are going crazy trying to find um, representation for those kids, and groups like Kids in Need of Defense, known as KIND, provides um, facilitates a national network of pro bono service provisions. But in terms of the kids who are detained, it tends to be sort of highest need. Is there a child who's about to turn 18? Um, let's tackle that case first. Um, if there, is there a child who's experiencing detention fatigue and might suddenly ask to go back even though she's got a strong claim? All right, let's take that case and try and get her into court before she gives up and, and walks away. All right, so we're running out of time. Um, I'll give this young lady the last question. services, at least where we are here, is extraordinarily difficult because, I don't know if it's on purpose, but they don't have any Spanish-speaking staff in a residential facility. So imagine if your child's sick and you're trying to communicate with a staff member, you can't. They have to call language line, which is a burden in itself. As far as us as attorneys, we're lucky enough to have excellent paralegals, and they work overtime and their weekends, and we get other people to come in to help us with languages. Um, that's Spanish. But the problem we run into is indigenous languages. So um, how do you get a MAM person? How do you get a K'iche' speaker? How do you get a Kachikel speaker? It's extremely difficult. And for us, um, we take on the cost ourselves. Um, 
we would appreciate anybody that has some kind of access to a yeah. service or or something. But that is something that we drastically need is um, access to indigenous languages. So um, I know that even the course themselves had a difficult time getting um, people to speak those languages. We okay. had a, we routinely have immigration judges who do have access to a language line um, uh, who will say, well, can you just speak Spanish? Um, and our child advocates <coughs> work with the children to empower them to say, my best language is Conchabal. My best language is Quiche. And we once had a child advocate who encouraged her youth to do that because he felt very strongly he needed to speak in Quiche. Um, and then every other child in court that day stood up and named there. And there were like 14 different indigenous languages. This was in... Um, in Texas, and you know, we were not good friends with the judge that day. But it's not our—it's not our friend. It's not our job to be good friends with the judge. I will say, plug again, that the Young Center recruits people of every language to be trained to serve as well. And you do not need to be a lawyer. In fact, most of our volunteers are social workers, teachers, retirees, first-generation immigrants themselves. Um, whatever language capacity you have, we can probably match you um, with a child advocate. I think for you and uh, Ms. Downey, you have an announcement? I just, yes, I just want to say, um, on May 2nd, there's going to be uh, at Dilly, at Carnes, and at Burks, we're going to have a day of, of action. Um, basically, a protest, we're working on the details. We would love to see people in numbers come out and let, you know, be heard be seen, let these women who are detained, you don't know how much it means to them to know that there are people out there fighting for them. So I don't know, we can give you our email address, uh, we can give you Justin's email address at highest PA, but everyone is welcome and to get involved and to get out there with us. I think we should make a sign-up sheet because these numbers that are here, we need numbers, so people that are watching, I don't know if it's live, but everybody needs to come. You need to tell students at this school, you need to tell students at UPenn, students at Temple, at Drexel, everybody needs to come because the more people we have, the more visibility we have, the more voices we have that just says, this is just not what we want. And again, the thing with Berks is we're, we're close. You know, there people can get here, you know? So, and whatever we do there is also bringing attention elsewhere. So I will, uh create a sign-up sheet and pass it around. But I want to I thank our panelists for coming out today and all the great work that they do.